Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Like many 80s kids, I grew up with today's guest. Tracy Thorne started early, forming the Marine Girls, once described as looking like they would break your arm before they'd let you break their hearts, while still at school. And everything but the girl, with her musical and life partner, Ben Watt, whilst at university. Since then, she has released three solo albums, three critically acclaimed memoirs, and had three children. Her fourth book, My Rock and Roll Friend, about her 37-year friendship with Lindy Morrison, drummer of Australian band The Go-Betweens, is my favourite yet. Always kind of owned that world of rock guitars and gigs and band practice and all that stuff. And I just thought it was so exciting that I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted to get in there. So the first thing I did was I bought a guitar and barged my way into one of their hands. For the next 45 minutes, Tracy talks success, power, the constant slog of making women's voices heard and why equality is a numbers game. She also tells us how menopause made her feel like she'd gone mad, the painful but liberating process of aging and what to do about your statement hair going grey, asking for a friend. Thank you for coming on The Shift, Tracy. Would you mind just telling the listeners a bit about where you are? Because we're obviously stuck on Zoom, as is um, that's what life's like now. So can you tell us a bit about the room that you're in and what your environment is? Um, so I'm at home, like everybody else. I'm sitting in my bedroom. Uh, I've had to try and choose a place to sit and do this because there's some quite noisy building work going on next door. So I'm basically hiding in what I hope is going to turn out to be a quiet corner of the house. Oh, God, don't worry. Like dogs, cats, kids, drills, you name it. That's what life is, isn't it? 
I just want you to know that I've listened to Missing 12 times this morning while prepping for this, getting myself in the zone. Let's just cut straight to the new book, My Rock and Roll Friend. And rather than me describing it to listeners, why don't you talk about the thinking behind it a bit? So the book I've written is, it's not a straightforward biography of another person. It's a book about my friendship with another person. And that person is Lindy Morrison, who was the drummer with Australian band The Go-Betweens throughout the 80s, um, who were a, you know, moderately successful sort of indie band. And I became friends with her in the early 80s. And the book sort of traces our friendship and in the process of doing that also talks about the things I learn about her, how I come to learn more about her story and really how she becomes a slightly representative figure um, as a woman in the music, Mm. a woman in the world really of any kind of art form or workplace where women are so in the minority and what happens to those women, you know, during the time that they're actually performing their work and then afterwards when the story gets told about their work and they either get written out of the story or turned into minor characters. So the book kind of goes on a journey to take in all that stuff as well. What made you write this book about her and not you? Well, I I was at the point where I wanted to, to start branching out Um, You know, I've written quite a lot now about my own stories. And I know, you know, life moves on. We've always got new stories to tell. But I just had this uh, hankering to start taking on board someone else's stories. Um, And for a while, I was toying with the idea of just choosing someone to write a kind of straight biography of and just spending a year or two researching and doing something slightly studious. I don't know. I kept toying with people and then thinking, I don't know whether I can actually get sort of passionate enough about it, you know, someone I don't know. And then actually the the idea to write about Lindy was triggered by her writing a very short piece herself, which was published in The Guardian. And she just wrote this quite anecdotal piece about being in a feminist punk band in the 70s and about how they used to play gigs and they'd get chased by the cops in Brisbane where she lived. And it was kind of this really exciting, interesting piece. Um, afterwards, she it was on Facebook and, you know, friends were saying to her, you should write a book, Lindy. You've got so many great stories. You know, you've had such an amazing life. And she went, no, no, I, I don't want to write a book. I'm never going to do that. And I just said to her quite flippantly, well, you know, tell me your stories and I'll start writing a book. Just as soon as I'd said it, I thought, wait, hang on, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good idea. I couldn't, that, couldn't I? And the fact that I know her means, you know, immediately it's different to a straight biography. I, I'm sort of a little bit inside the story I'm also looking at it from the outside so then a few days later I I composed an email to her in which I sort of raised the question more seriously and obviously my first question to her had to be do you think you would want to write your own book because you know you do have a story to tell do you have any desire to write one she said no honestly I'm not going to do it you know I said well okay I'm seriously thinking of doing it so you know I'd need to be able to spend a lot of time talking to you and interviewing you and, and asking you and doing research and stuff you know how do you feel and she said yeah let's do it <laughs> I mean you've been friends for what 37 years yeah, now? But very on and off I mean you know it because it's such a long friendship it's also the story of you know probably inevitably a friendship that's been broken in some ways and intermittent and not least because you know she's lived in Australia for most of that time while I've mm. been in London you know that was another interesting thing really just sort of tracing the strands of the ways in which friendships evolve and change over a long period of time and what happens to them. Yeah, I was really interested in the way that you met and there was an instant spark because like you said, you know, you were both women in the music industry, which, you know, it's a 
not the most female friendly industry, shall we say, but maybe it's just more honest than some other industries in its uh, overt misogyny. Those are my words, not yours, but I'm kind of thinking you're coming from a similar place. But also that you said quite interestingly that you had been careless about making friends with girls mm. until you met her and that you'd been one of the cool girls. Why do you think that was? I think it started during my teens and I do think it was true with being drawn towards music. You know, it was the thing that sort of energised and excited me. And, you know, to be frank, it was a bit of a boy's world. You know, then, as I think probably in some respects still now, boys kind of owned that world of rock guitars and gigs and band practice and all that stuff. And I just thought it was so exciting that I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted to get in there. So the first thing I did was I bought a guitar and barged my way into one of their bands and joined a band as the only girl. Then I I realised quite quickly the disadvantages of that and then formed a girl group for a while with the Marine Girls, which was with Mm. two close friends. And then I went off to university and met Ben. And so we formed a a partnership together. And then, as I say, I got kind of lazy and I moved in a world so much of the time where I was the only woman or in a minority of, you know, there would be two of us maybe. And I think in order to kind of survive in that world, the thing about being the cool girl where you kind of get used to like going along with the, you know, the boys jokes and not making a fuss, not wanting to be a prude or whatever, you know. And, you know, as I say, I I just didn't meet that many women and I stopped making the effort to deliberately seek women out. So when I met Lindy, which was in about 1983. I was still at university then and I just didn't have loads of other girlfriends. Um, And again, we didn't become friends immediately. It it took a couple of years. Um, And I think by that stage, you know, I was already working in the music industry. I think by that stage, I really needed an ally. And I think she did as well. She was at the time, the only woman in the band she was in. And I think we both just kind of found something in each other that had been missing, perhaps without even either of us noticing it was missing. In the book, you said you we were both stranded and it seemed like you were both kind of marooned in like man music land almost. Yes. And, you know, it's that thing where, you know, you either constantly keep sort of making a fuss and, you know, fighting your corner or, you know, there are times when you let things go. And then when you meet another woman who, when as soon as you start talking to them, they've had the same experience. It's like this light bulb going on over your head. And you just think, oh, my God, I'm not mad. I'm not imagining it. What, you mean road crew talk to you like that as well in that really disparaging way, like you don't know which way to hold your microphone? <laughs> Again, when you do make a female friend who becomes an ally, you know, it's a sort of vindication of, of your own experience. You know, they, they tell you things and you bounce your stories off each other and you both realise that, you know, you're not just imagining it, you know, that the world is the way it is and um, it's not a figment of your imagination. You know, as a bit of a fan and we know each other a little bit and I feel like I kind of grew up with you and your music. (laughs) Um, It looks like from where I'm sat, it looks like you navigated the system better than her. Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, I think... You know, the band I was in ended up being more successful, result of that, which is that you acquire a little bit more power. I benefited from that. Eventually, I I was in a position where I was able to control things a little bit more. And also the version of my story, even if if we, you know, go even more long term than that, the version of my story that's been told, you know, I've been able to have more control over. I've been able to write my own story. I've been able to... Mm interpret my own history and you know put my point of view my perspective Lindy's never really had that you know the story of the go-betweens 
has been told quite a lot now in retrospect. They've turned into one of those the greatest bands who never made it. You know, there's lots mm-hmm. of you know these kind of lengthy articles written about how they're one of those bands they should have been they should have been but one of the things that happened along the way was that their story got very much taken over by male writers who just subtly and probably without even noticing they were doing it just downgraded Lindy's role so that the two front men of the band Robert and Grant ended up becoming the sort of main instigators and the lead characters in every story that was told about them, as though they were just a duo. And she was just a backing musician. Whereas she was there right from the start. You know, when they began, they were a three-piece. She was a very, very dynamic, motivated, ambitious character. So, you know, even the kind of, you know, setting the wheels in motion to get them moving as a band, get them to leave Australia, come to London, sign to Rough Trade, try and make it as a band. You know, she had a massive role in, in all yeah, I mean, there's a scene when they're all living in London at the beginning and they're completely broke and she's out cleaning. She goes and works as a cleaner for a while. I'm sure she told me at the time, but I came across the facts in the book Robert Forster wrote about the band and, and he kind of recounted the story quite disparagingly to Lindy. I think the phrase he used was something like, oh, Lindy was, you know, desperate for money or something. So she went to work as a cleaner while I was at home writing songs. And I spoke to Lindy about it. And I said, well, what does that mean? What, what were you desperate for? Money? And it makes it sound like you're out buying fur coats. <laughs> well, you know, we didn't have enough money for shampoo or milk. <laughs> um, so I decided to do something about it. And I went to work as a cleaner. I thought, well, this is a brilliant little story. I don't really need to elaborate much here. <laughs> When you were just saying about his rendition of that story, that's such a classic experience of women in art, isn't it? I was at home being an artist and she was out doing the cleaning to pay for milk. Yes, to keep it all going. And it's seen as both inevitable. Yes, of course, that's what women do. And also paints you into the corner of being the square, you know, even implying Mm. that you're going out working as a cleaner kind of is indicative of you somehow being in verticals desperate for money. You know, immediately, it's not very rock and roll, is it? You're grabby and materialist. The thing that's been done to women a lot of the time is that, you know, just this subtle undermining all the time. I think one of the things about me and Lindy's world is in that era we lived in, we didn't really have language to describe what we would now call microaggressions. Just little subtle ways in which you're constantly undermined and you sort of absorb them and question yourself. And probably Lindy did absorb some of that and think, oh, my God, maybe this is me. Maybe I am being, you know, a bit too bourgeois, you know, wanting to be yeah. a actually wash my hair yeah I mean one of the things that she's struck me is she's constantly described by other people that you then translate as too much yeah it's like all of those things that if women are they're wrong and if men are they're characterful it becomes even more kind of pointed when you realize you're looking at the world of rock and roll here as you say the kind of behavior that is absolutely the norm and expected from a man in rock and roll you know she's described as being too loud Um, She swears too much. She drinks too much. She's too aggressive. You know, she slightly scares male journalists. Now, all these things are seen as massive pluses from a male rock musician. Those are the things that get you turned into a rock god, an icon. But, you know, when I was trawling through the press, I would just find these quotes about her. And I didn't really need to add much except quote them. I mean, I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway, what about female journalists? I mean, were there any? Well, there's a point when I when I went out to talk to her in Australia and there's a brilliant bit, again, where I said to we were having one of these conversations and I said to her, but Lindy, were, were you ever 
interviewed by women? And she says to me, yeah, no, hang on, there is one. Hang on, I'll go and find it. And I just thought, okay, one, you can remember one. You know, given that I was, you know, in music at the same time, I would share that experience. You know, we weren't often interviewed by women. And to be frank, it is still often the case. Not so much in this country. You know, there's a really good strand of female music journalists in this country now. But, you know, when I last had an album out three, four years ago, I went to do a day's press in Paris. And I spent a day in a room where, you know, journalists came in and out. And I just, I counted them. It was something like 12 men in a row and not a single woman. Do you find the questioning is very different if you're interviewed by male music journalists? Yes, it's just the amount of extra explaining you have to do sometimes when you're being interviewed always by men. You know, the the record I was promoting four years ago was really quite a feminist record and quite feminist lyrics. And, you know, it's not that these journalists are all terrible. A lot of them are great and very insightful and everything. But it's just there's a kind of extra double layer of explanation required. And, you know, I mean, again, things that I might write about that to me seem obviously to have a a political slant are still perhaps just categorised as being domestic or emotional or as though there's a sort of separate category that there's like political lyric writing over here and then there's, oh, you've written this song about hormones or like childbirth or contraception. Well, that's kind of domestic and niche, you know. Yeah, like women's fiction, if, you know, men write a book it's an important work of literary genius if women write it it's about children or like you say menopause or exactly and then when you know so you you kind of defend yourself and make your argument but you know it's when you have to have that argument over and over again in the course of the day that then you start to feel you know you can even hear that little nagging voice in the back of your own head just going hang on am i being a pain here you know am i overstating this am i am i imagining it that's the thing i was saying originally about you know when you encounter other women and, and you see yourself reflected and you say something and they immediately go oh god yeah you're not being defensive I suppose is the point you're not feeling like you're having to defend your corner you're just stating something and being heard yeah you're not having to justify having written a song about menopause yeah you must be the only person who's ever written a song about menopause you think I don't know there must be I don't know I should go away and do some research. Yeah, we should find out. Fine, let's do it. Google it. <laughs> Even mine, you see, won't come up because no one. <laughs> Again, women perhaps have, but, you know, it could easily have slipped through and not been heard even. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me so much of your work, this book, most of your lyrics, they're all about kind of being heard and having a voice, your own voice, and also giving women a voice and putting their stories front and centre. Yes, yes. I think I've thought that since I was quite young and that really all you can do is keep slogging away and keep putting stuff out there that redresses the balance you know it's and I say that quite clearly in this book you know that again this is a quite a small story you know Lindy is not a hugely famous person the go-betweens weren't a hugely famous band you know they didn't change the course of rock and roll so I'm not kind of rediscovering someone who absolutely transformed music I'm telling the story of someone who in some ways you know only has a small role in this But that's the case for most of us. And there are so many women out there who, yes, individually, their roles might be quite small, but you add them all together and it's suddenly it's massive and it's much more representative of the role women have played in things. And, you know, men can have tiny little achievements and yet have books written about them and films made about them. You know, it's it's a kind of mark of seriousness as an artist that perhaps you never quite reached the audience you should have done. You know, that's often the justification for someone writing a book about someone. 
I keep coming back to this line in the book, and I've heard you say it previously, but men experience existential despair while women have periods. (laughs) I absolutely love that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about hormones, Tracy. (laughs) You know, we do tread a fine line, I do think, as women, when we talk about it, because on the one hand, you know, we're very assertive about wanting to include our experiences of things like hormones in just general human experience. So things like periods and menopause being accepted as huge bits of human experience. And on the other hand, it is still irritating to have your every emotion or mood swing defined by you being apparently hormonal. And obviously, you know, we've all had it used against us, haven't we? Oh, she's oh, she's got oh time of the month. Oh, here she is, you know, mm. all feeling a bit premenstrual, are you? You know, oh, she's having a hot flush, whatever. Again, it's such difficult to territory to navigate to on the one hand be wanting to to push for those things and you know their centrality is you know to our experience without then falling into that trap of just being defined by so you can't ever transcend them when you were because you went through menopause a while ago didn't you yeah i'm out the other end <laughs> out the other end do you find it better out this side god yeah yeah the going through it is is no big fun did you feel at the time that you knew anything about it that there was you know people to talk to about it or just keep quiet get your head down and get through it the thing I didn't know enough about was the sort of mental side of it. I felt like I was just prepared for the physical changes. And I I sort of toughed it out a bit because I thought these physical symptoms are not unbearable, which they weren't, although in retrospect, they were pretty shit. <laughs> I just thought, you know, in this stoic way, oh, well, these are not too bad. I don't need to take HRT or anything. I, I'll just kind of tough it out. And so I had a couple of appointments with doctors discussing the physical symptoms. But no one ever said to me, and how are you feeling mentally? No. And... If they had, I think I would have said, oh, well, I don't know. I do think I've gone mad, but that's probably something else. And I wish someone had said, you know, things like HRT and stuff, not just necessarily there for hot flushes and things. You know, if you actually feel like you're going mad, that might help. So in retrospect, I do wish I had known more about that. Because now when I talk to other women, you know, some of whom have been just a few years behind me. So, you know, gone through it after me when it's too late. The whole sort of, I don't know, anxiety for me it was, which became just for a couple of years, really out of control. And I just didn't really put two and two together and appreciate that it was probably a menopausal symptom. Well, nobody tells you, do they? I mean, I think that's one of the things that really struck me is that I had no idea either. No. About the mental health no. aspect of it. No. So I had a bit of therapy, which did help. And, and again, probably helped access some sort of bigger underlying causes as well. But it was so noticeable, you know, that as I came through the other side physically of the menopause, so my mental state just began to settle until I felt myself not completely back to the person I was before but almost like (laughs) settling into being as a new person but the kind of high drama of the bit in the middle had eased and it was only then that I had a moment of thinking wow that really was to do with the menopause wasn't it I wish I'd made that connection sooner because I might have done something about it. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot of people that I've spoken to have talked about how they feel a lot more in touch now with their younger self yeah. than they did. For some, it's because they've come through the other side of the kind of child-rearing years, but mm. much more, I don't want to say adolescent, because, you know, that is a really loaded word, but much more, you know, in keeping with their I don't know, I'm picking age 12-year-old self than actually with their maybe 25-year-old self. No, I mean, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, you know, again, the, the other thing I write about in this book is that towards the period of me starting to write it, I was going through a bit of a life crisis myself, which wasn't really my menopause. It was post-menopausal. And I do think probably for me was very much to do with coming to the end of the child-rearing years. And having had three kids, it being quite intense for many years, that being a massive part of my life. And I'd, you know, taken a very deliberate decision during those years to keep my work-life balance very much balanced in favour of life, not work. So I made my work fit in around the kids and took on less work, didn't really travel away from them. And that was my choice. It was really what I wanted to do. And I did very, very much enjoy it. But what it meant was that when that started to come to an end, I did have a massive sense of thinking, who am I now? Who do I want to be? Who needs me? Who do I need? You know, the kids have been the centre of my life. What's going to be the centre of my life now? And how did you resolve that? Well, I don't I don't know that it is completely resolvable. Um, I think it's just, you know, the sort of crisis of it is more it coming to the surface, I think. And so perhaps anxieties and thoughts that you've buried a little bit sort of burst to the surface. I think that coincided with our youngest being about to leave home. And so I was writing this book in in the mood of that. And in some ways, it wasn't a bad mood to be in to be writing this book because it was quite energising. And it did reconnect me a bit with my younger self because it reminded me of those feelings you have, especially kind of maybe 
maybe late teens, early 20s, when it's all about who am I going to be? What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to have? How do I become the person I'm meant to be? And I felt like it was a kind of resurgence of that. So in that sense, yeah, I felt very much that I was reconnecting. Have you worked out what Tracy Thorne 4.0 looks like? I don't know that I have. I mean, as I say, it was quite a good energising mood to be in to write the book. And it kind of fired me through the writing of it, which I finished and delivered the first draft of last February. And then we all know what happened next. At the moment of me perhaps having to fully confront, okay, what do I want my life to be? What am I doing? That decision was taken out of my hands, as it was for everyone else. So the answer is I don't honestly know, because I think I feel a little bit as though life was put on hold a bit. Yeah. I think in a way, if you were slightly in that kind of mental, personal limbo, which I have been too, the lockdown has not necessarily been a bad thing. I mean, like we moved to Scotland in the middle of lockdown. It's forced me to not travel to London every month. Yeah. You know, not keep trying to be who I maybe was. Yeah. Just have to do what you do to get through, don't you? Exactly. And I think, you know, the thing I found through lockdown is that, again, like everyone really, I've just had to make my focus smaller again. You know, find little pleasures and satisfactions in the day, around the house. And I've rediscovered my garden. I've always loved gardening, but it had drifted a bit because I'd been busy and sometimes traveling a lot more. And it's very good for me as well. I think, I mean, it's literally very grounding. I do think, you know, it actually does calm me and it gives me a sense of purpose and continuity, you know, and the seasons and all that. So that's been good for me. I saw you tweet about not having a greenhouse anymore yeah. a couple of days ago. Uh, you tweeted about gardening and then Lloyd Cole replied about his <laughs> garden. It was completely surreal. It was like, Yeah, we all are now. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your look because it's such a distinctive look. And I had been going to ask you if you could envisage ever turning your striking inky black crop grey. And yep. then you popped up on the screen. Here it is. And there it is, silver grey. Yeah. Looking fabulous. What happened? What made that? I, I, I Luckily, I'd grown it out before lockdown happened. So I didn't have to. I mean, I grew, I started growing it out about two years ago. And first of all, I had little highlights put in to kind of blend the, because I really have been this colour for many years and I have been dyeing it so, you know, there would have been a solid kind of white line growing out. I put highlights in and grew it out gradually, gradually. And very much with the thought that, you know, if it's not a good colour when it grows out, then I'm going to just bleach it completely white because I I don't want just you know, semi grey kind yeah. of hair. I want it to be white. And but as it grew out, it was clearly very, very white. So I've just left it be. Yeah, it's a beautiful silvery white. It is like a colour that people would try and dye theirs. So I'm I'm happy with it. But I have to say I'm kind of astonished really at how I don't feel like it has changed my look really. Like you, I, I thought, oh no, I'm wedded to this look forever. I have, you know, a black crop and red red lipstick and that's my face. And if I don't have that yeah. Who even am I? (laughs) And you haven't got your red lips either. You know, when I started doing it, it was a real kind of leap into the dark of thinking, oh, God, I don't know, but I've got to do something. I got really sick of dying it. But I'm astonished, really, at how I look at myself now and think, you don't really look any different. It's the similar kind of effect, you know, because it's just a kind of mass of white rather than a mass of black. So, (laughs) Yeah, it was. it's still statement-y, I think. Yeah, I think that was my point. It looks great. I, I wouldn't have wanted it just to be a bit halfway, so. 
You've talked in previous books and actually in this book you touched on it as well about the kind of pressure to be a girly girl when you were a teenager in, in the 70s and 80s. You develop your look to push back against that. Yes. Yeah, I think I did. You know, I struggled a little bit during my teens and, you know, late teens. I couldn't quite settle on the compromise between, you know, this pressure to look a certain way and feeling that, you know, I couldn't quite live up to that. So I'd kind of come up with my own look. But doing that and then being properly confident in that look and happy with it is another matter, especially as a young woman. You know, I think I look back at footage of myself, I can see that from the outside, it looks like a really strong statement. You know, I've got hair shaved right up the sides and back and standing up on top and I don't know, quite androgynous clothes. And it looks very confident. But I can remember that sometimes inside I wasn't feeling as confident and I was still concerned about what people might think of how I looked and were they being critical and were those lads in the front row there, you know, giving me that look slightly askance, you know, thinking, oh, God, she looks like a bloke. That connects me with Lindy as well. You know, when I met Lindy, to me, she seemed like the epitome of self-confidence, but spent her whole life feeling that she wasn't conventionally pretty. And so, you know, it's a very tricky one. I think rationally you're trying to fight back against those expectations, but they do run deep and we all grow up with those expectations and they, they kind of get their hooks in you quite young. Even though you know that it's all bullshit, hmm. it still doesn't mean it's easy to ignore it or not think about it. I mean, you talk in the book about that kind of, you know that like, for instance, competing with other women for the attention of men is like, a bad thing but it doesn't mean that one doesn't do it no I, I you know we all do live in in this world and it's very complicated and sometimes sometimes you jump one way and sometimes you jump another way and we're often involved in odd compromises just to try and get through but, you know the whole appearance thing is, is so sad i think sometimes they're not not feeling that you look great um, and like most people, you know, now I'm the age I am. I look back at photographs of myself when I was young, you know, photo shoots or videos and things. And I mean, I look amazing because, of course, I did. I was 23. You know, everyone yeah. looks amazing when they're 23. And yet in some of those instances, I can remember the day. I can remember the standing in front of that camera and, you know, feeling, oh, God, this isn't right. Oh, I don't like my makeup. Oh, I wish I hadn't worn this, you know, and. So it's it's just so sad, I think, that sometimes we don't believe those things and don't have the fun of enjoying it at the time, you know, especially as young women, that you don't get as much pleasure out of the experience mm. of being a gorgeous young woman, which, you know, all young women are. You've got two daughters, haven't you, who were, are they 23 now? Yes. How are they? How is it for young women today, do you think? Better, worse? Oh, it's very mixed, I think. The whole is it better, is it worse thing, I have very mixed feelings about. In some ways, they're even more kind of alert to injustices and, you know, the stereotyping than we were. And their peers are as well. So they live in a world, you know, within their peer group that's much more in tune with that than, than we were. And that, so that's an improvement, I think. But, you know, then to counter the the joy of that, they've got social media and, and I can see how that has an effect on them and how acutely self-conscious they are. Not necessarily just in the, in the meaning of, you know, being sort of shy self-conscious, but just super conscious all the time of their appearance. What do you think about the whole cross kind of generational thing? Because I definitely feel like I've learned a lot from millennial women and increasingly Gen Z. And then on the other hand, sometimes I see older women go, well, we put up with it. So I don't see why they're making a fuss. 
Yeah, yeah, that's an odd one. I mean, I've tried very hard, and it probably is to do with having daughters. So you know, I've, I've had them in the house. I've, I've tried really hard not to sort of slip into that slight the defensive thing of being an older feminist and thinking my version of feminism is the kind of end point. It's meant that I've stayed open to them and their version of feminism, whatever that means. And also just attuned to the fact that, you know, they're kind of making their rules and everything to fit the world they live in as it is now, which is not the 1980s. I just remind myself all the time that they're living in a different context and you know, loads more stuff has happened in the meantime, you know, there's been some progress made and some things have slipped back. And so they've got to deal with that. You know, they're living in an entirely new technological landscape. So they've got to navigate that. I'm desperately keen not to sort of shut myself off into that thing of thinking I'm this generation of feminist and therefore these younger ones just, you know, I I don't like that. No. Before I get to the questions that I always ask at the end, um, at the end of the book, you quote Rebecca Solnit talking about female non-existence. It just made me think that your age, my age, Lindy's age, who is older, that actually at the time of our lives when society really wants to kind of totally invisible us, that many, many women I've spoken to in their 50s and 60s and beyond are actually like more stubborn and more confident and less likely actually to put up with shit than ever before. And I thought that was kind of quite an interesting conflict, Hmm. almost at a point in our lives where we come into our own. I don't know if you agree what you think about that. I do think that's true. And I and I, I feel it in myself that I'm a more confident being. But as I say, I, I think the danger is the then getting sort of set in your ways. And again, I think that's inevitable. I mean, I joke about me and Lindy being a couple of old biddies sometimes when yeah. we're together with each other, both a bit set in our ways and almost, you know, arguing a little bit, even when we hadn't seen each other for years. And so that can be quite funny. But I, I do think it's important not to get stuck mentally you know in in terms of getting so sort of confident in your beliefs that actually they they become inflexible that's a really good point what would you like to see change for women in the music industry i mean we haven't got all day obviously (laughs) but just like a top line thing just thinking about lindy's experience particularly of being written out of the history of the go-betweens and the way she was it's really hard, isn't it, to know where to start? I mean, we always think really that ultimately it's a numbers game, isn't it? It's just representation. So the more women there are doing various jobs, whether that's being musicians themselves or writers or sound engineers, you know, especially those kind of jobs in which women are so underrepresented, you know, the more women are allowed into that world, it means that they they sort of recognise each other. It's been interesting talking to two or three men so far about this book. And my first three interviews were with men, three that I did last week. And I was a little bit anxious thinking, oh, God, you know, fans of this band or whatever might already have in their mind a sense of what this story is, might resent my retelling of this story, which casts the men involved, all of them, not always in a good light. You know, how's it going to be received? And actually, each interview was very interesting. And they all were entirely supportive, entirely understood the points I was making, and were refreshed to sort of have their perspective challenged, which I thought on the one hand was great, but also just made me think, but why can't you do this yourselves? Yes. <laughs> you 
know, a little bit came away from it thinking, it's great that you're sort of saying, wow, you've really made me sit up and notice. But I still felt slightly, we've been saying this now for a long time. So that's where I still just think we just need more women to be doing the writing. And, the, you know, because again, these men are well-meaning men. They're not bad men. When you sort of spell it out to them and tell them an interesting story, they get it and they're interested. And they're, as I say, they're refreshed to hear something from a new angle. So there just needs to be more of that. There just needs to be more women writing and talking about music and making films. You know, documentary filmmaking is in the world of music is an area that drives me insane. Um, it is so male dominated and the films that get made, the way in which they're made, the talking head interviews, which are always, you know, I sit there and count the minutes sometimes. How long has it been since a woman spoke? Oh, 25 minutes, you know. Yeah. So, you know, areas like that, I just think could be turned upside down. And and then that world would feel so much more welcoming to other women and, and to women performers, especially. And don't forget, if you're a woman at a soundcheck, at a gig, you're in your workplace. You know, I look back to those experiences and I realise I had every right to feel sometimes patronised and intimidated. You know, I was at work. And when you all the buzz around you is male chatter and male banter and you know, that slightly testosterone heavy kind of, you know, male sense of humour stuff, it has an effect on you. So yeah, it's just numbers, isn't it? It's just getting women in there doing these jobs. It is. <laughs> okay. What is your emotional age? <laughs> well, I thought about this one and I honestly think my emotional age is my actual age, which is 58. I think that is exactly where I am, because I think even though, you know, it fluctuates and you have periods when you sort of connect perhaps with your younger self, you can't go back to being that younger self. And it's still, maybe it's some aspects of your younger self, but they are all layered up with everything that's happened to you in between. And, you know, your emotions age and mature at the same rate as the rest of you, I think, you know, the years that have passed. Cool. Give us a book recommendation, a book that's been significant to you. Gwendolyn Riley's new book, My Phantom, which I just read and thought was brilliant. And it's a brilliant uh, sort of mother-daughter relationship portrayal. And very funny, a lot of it, but in a slightly, you know, skewy way. Yeah, it's a really good one. It's good. It's a great one. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? <laughs> well, I thought about this and it did make me think of my daughters, you know, again, the thing we were just saying about how I'm so aware that they are living in a different world to the one in which I was a young woman that I am very, very reluctant to give advice. So I tend to stick to just, you know, practical things like you know, oven chips need twice as long as it says on the bag. And they always do, don't they? they? That is so weird. Have a wee after sex so you don't get cystitis. Just, I keep it practical. <laughs> That's pretty excellent advice, actually. <laughs> Where are we? I've lost my thread now. Um, name an old bird role model. Uh, Lolly Willows. Tell me about her. Fictional old biddy um, role model. So Lolly Willows is a novel by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Oh, no, I've, I'm so ignorant. So it's absolutely brilliant. You'll love it. I need to dig it out. I can't remember when it was written, about the 1930s or something. Um, anyway, so it's this woman who's just been treated like a bit of a doormat her entire life. It's this sort of childless aunt figure. And then she finally decides she's just had enough um, and goes off to live by herself in the countryside where she finds true happiness <laughs> on her own and discovers that she's a witch. 
Uh, what's your superpower? It's quite a domestic one, but it's it's cooking a roast dinner and getting it all on the table at the same time. So um, it's not to be sniffed at. I am quite proud of the day I'm most proud of it is Christmas Day when I can do the whole Christmas dinner thing drunk because let's be honest by the time you're cooking lunch you're drunk and I can still get it all on the table at the right time and I just think that's a bit of a superpower honestly you've got like quite a hidden practical side haven't you yes yes I'm no um you know helpless artist at all it's one of the reasons I like gardening so much and I like cooking I like just you know hands-on stuff you can make you know you do it yourself or you sleep up and make something yeah cool and last one how many fucks do you give <laughs> the answer we all aspire to give is none um but I don't think that's true really fewer than I used to I think I'm a mixture of sometimes being quite defiant about things and at other times still feeling that there's that sort of vulnerable core. Um, And I think maybe that's the balance we all, you know, struggle with is how to sort of keep that front up that enables you to engage with the world and, you know, be open enough to it, but without being so wounded by it that you're, you know, defeated. Um, but it's a it's a balance, I think. So I give, I don't know, a few fucks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's brilliant thank you Tracy that's really great thank you and really good luck with the book it's brilliant I absolutely loved it excellent I'm really pleased thanks thank you for listening you can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please do rate review and follow because it really does help other people find us And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.